Interesting to note too, this all took place outside the temple wall. There was no altar. There was no priest. So Jews, they wouldn't have really seen a once for all sacrifice that we have come to know throughout the centuries. What's up everybody, this is Josh for Practical Theism. Hope everybody's doing well. Wanted to take a quick minute to do a quick reflection on the last saying of Christ on the cross before he passes into death. We're actually gonna go through this in Luke 23, verse 44. So we start at verse 44. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this saw what took place, they beat their breast and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So the last saying of Christ, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. You know, he's actually, again, quoting another psalm, Psalm 31.5. And in Psalm 31.5, you see total surrender to God in his particular situation. And Jesus is really echoing that here. Psalm 31 goes like this, starting in verse 1. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. So in true fashion of the sayings that he's had on the cross, he's quoting the psalmist. And also to notice the centurion, a guard who's really stirred up to belief through this whole experience as he's watching Jesus, this innocent man, this man of righteousness that he's come to see as he's been seeing everything unfold. And John feels the need in his writing to declare Christ innocent again. Remember, we saw that with the thief on the cross who said this man has done nothing wrong. There's this perpetual notion that John's trying to get across of like, Jesus is innocent. This isn't something that he was afforded or he did wrong, but that man was willfully moving him to the cross and through the crucifixion, even though he was innocent. So John is very concerned of making sure that fact is articulated in the gospel. So these are the final words of Christ. He commits his life in full to God, an offering of pure love to the Father. Notice to the willing, intentional surrender. It's not something that was forced. He wasn't coerced to doing this. He, in full submission to the divine will, in full alignment with God and God's purposes and his plan, in full communication with God, he willingly goes through with this as it's a part of God's plan for the salvific story. Interesting to note too, this all took place outside the temple wall. There was no altar. There was no priest. So Jews, they wouldn't have really seen a once-for-all sacrifice that we have come to know throughout the centuries because they were so used to sacrifices taking place inside the temple with a Levitical priest on an altar. So what would make this a sacrifice instead of a Roman bloody execution? The first thing is the free gift of his life. A sacrifice or a murder is really something that is against a man who's got some wrongdoing. But an offering is something that's willfully given. And that's what Jesus does. We see him willfully giving his life over the night before as he shares his last supper meal with 
his disciples. The next thing too to take note of is the veil tearing in two. What's the significance of that? The veil tearing in two. What's the significance of that? This really is rupturing the Old Testament sacrifices. It's a really kind of symbolic presentation and also a, a, a definitive declaration that the Old Testament sacrifices are gone. There's no need for the old temple. Christ is the new temple, as we saw in John 2.19. It says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up again. Very strong declaration for a temple that took years and years to build. But of course, he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. And uh, the other thing to note, too, is our bodies are temples, as 1 Corinthians 6.19 says. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? The temple in Jewish tradition was the holding place of God. It was the meeting point where divinity and humanity could kind of coexist, if you will. Now, all of that was ruptured the minute Christ was incarnate, because that was now the marriage point between divinity and humanity. So the new temple is Christ and we as believers are a temple ourselves because our bodies house Jesus and house the Holy Spirit in communion with him. The other thing to note too is Christ dines with us. If we look at Revelation 3.20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. So this is a clear movement towards this idea of our bodies being a temple because Christ is there in us, right? And so you see in the temple, the Holy of Holies, the Old Testament temple, the Holy of Holies was the point, the place where the high priest would go in and actually commune with God or communicate with God. So what meal is Jesus talking about in Revelation 3.20? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if you recall the Old Testament Jewish analogies from the Old Testament Passover, which is the rubric we've been following up until this point because of the association with the Passover and the timing of the crucifixion, Exodus 12, 8 says this, they are to eat the meat that night, roasted over the fire, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So it wasn't just enough in the Passover tradition and Passover ritual of the Old Testament for them to sacrifice the lamb. They had to consume the lamb too. It wasn't complete until that took place. So after the blood was drawn over the doorpost in the time of Egypt, um, they were to eat the meat that night. Uh, so how do we share in that feast? It's the meal that will perpetuate itself over time. And that meal is the one that Christ instituted the night before his death, where he freely offered his body and blood in the form of bread and wine. And it becomes fully possible for him to offer it to us throughout time with what we celebrate tomorrow. And that is his resurrection. A lot more to dive in on that point, but I'll leave that with you here. I hope everybody has a great Saturday and definitely hit that like button, throw some comments below so we can start a dialogue, pound that subscribe button like you mean it so you can get more of this awesome content from all of us here at Practical Theism. Have a great Easter Sunday. We'll talk soon. Thanks.